excited to talk about a topic that has intrigued us for a long time, but came to the fore yet again this year because of the conflict in Ukraine. And this is the topic of diaspora bonds, how to tap the diaspora, particularly when the diaspora wants to assist the mother country. So Mark and I have been talking about how do we do an episode on this since we don't actually know anything about it. And so we talked to some of our veteran friends in the industry, and they said, there's one person you should talk to. And we have him here today, Stephen Tepper, who was formerly at Arnold and Porter, which is a legendary uh, sovereign debt firm, among many, many other things. Uh, but Stephen worked in the sovereign debt area for multiple decades and has been very generous in being willing to come and talk to us today about the most successful diaspora bonds program in existence, maybe the only really successful one, but also uh, I'm hoping that he will talk to us about why some of the other attempts, including Ukraine, haven't really thrived. So welcome, Stephen. Thank, thank you, uh, me too. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Thank you, Mark. Um, this, is, this is exciting. This is my first podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, hopefully there will be uh, many more uh, <laughs> and many more with us. But I'm, I'm wondering, Stephen, actually, before we get into the Israel bonds program, wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what your sense is as to why Ukraine's uh, attempt sort of failed before it even got off the ground. I mean, uh, I'm guessing that you didn't work on it because now you do other stuff. So I'm hoping you can speculate for us. But if you did work on it, of course, tell us and then... Um, we can move on to other topics because you're probably then not allowed to talk about it. Uh, will do. I'll, I'll come back to Ukraine in a second. First, first I should point out um, maybe a few disclaimers. Uh, I did uh, I did work uh, on behalf of the state of Israel for uh, over 32 years or so as uh, I think primary U.S. finance council, which included the the Israel bonds program. Um, but I retired from Arnold and Porter. Uh, I'm now general counsel to a not-for-profit uh, entity, but I retired from Arnold and Porter uh, about four and a half years ago. Uh, so I have not been uh, involved in in uh, representing Israel in that time. And I am a retired partner of Arnold and Porter, not an active one. So anything that I say today, uh, 
represents my own views. I'm not speaking for Israel. I'm not speaking for Arnold and Porter. And of course, while we're discussing a bond program, uh, I, am, I am not providing investment advice. Uh, no one should take invest, investment advice from me in any event, but this is not investment advice or an attempt, <laughs> I, uh, an attempt to sell any securities or or to promote any securities. I am I am out of that business now, uh, although I, as you said, had many decades of, of working in that area. That's funny. We never thought to issue that disclaimer, I think, because it's just obvious that nobody would ever take investment advice from us, but uh, <laughs> point taken for sure. Actually, uh, I think the markets often do the opposite of what we tell them, Mark, and usually they're right. That uh, I, I've had that experience too. So if you look at my portfolio, you'll know not to take my investment advice. Um, but uh, you know, 40 some odd years as a securities lawyer, I can't help but issue that disclaimer uh, every every time that we speak. Um, for for Ukraine, I was not involved in their attempts at a diaspora bond, but I did work on a uh, U.S. supported financing uh, through USAID. That's a whole other subject. There's a loan guarantee program that actually was created uh, initially for for Israel. It's another Israeli financing that I worked on. Um, uh, under which the uh, first President Bush authorized $10 billion of, of guarantees uh, for Israeli securities. And the second President Bush added another $9 billion. Um, and beginning with the Arab Spring, the, the Department of State rediscovered that program and started um, making it available to other issuers. We did offerings for Tunisia, Jordan, uh, Iraq, and Ukraine. But I was not involved in Ukraine's um, uh, attempts at a, at a diaspora bond. Um, I, I think that um, some of the reasons why Ukraine may not have been initially successful, which is not to say it wouldn't be successful today, um, I think are going to be apparent as we talk about the Israeli program and what makes the uh, Israeli program different uh, from, from others. Um, if you'd like, I'll, I'll give for those who are not familiar with it, I'll give a little bit of background. The, the Israel Bonds program uh, started in 1951, which was only three years after the uh, formation of the State of Israel. And it was the uh, brainchild of David Ben-Gurion, who was the founder of the state and the first prime minister. Um, uh, un under the program, bonds are sold in direct sales to investors uh, in a continuous offering. So it's not an underwritten offering. It's not a firm commitment offering like most sovereign financings. Uh, and it's not sold through traditional underwriters or investment banks. Uh, I'll come back to that in a moment about uh, exactly how they are sold and marketed. Uh, they're sold worldwide, not only in the U.S. Uh, there are three uh, sort of captive broker dealers who handle the sales. One is the U.S. is U.S. based. One in Canada and one for the rest of the world, but they are sold worldwide. Um, and current sales are at a, at a level of about uh, one and a half billion dollars a year. That's a lot of bonds are being sold through this program. Uh, Israel has never defaulted on. Uh, uh, on an Israel bond or any other debt uh, of the state, no matter what was going on, which included, you know, a number of wars throughout its history, but it has never defaulted on its debt. Um, and as I said, I, I was uh, involved as counsel to the Ministry of Finance, which included um, 
paying attention to the Israel bonds program in the U.S. So, Steve, um, can you? Can, can you tell us a bit, I, I know that eventually we're going to want to talk about some of the in the weeds contract terms, because the, these these bonds are so fascinating in terms of their, their structure of their legal terms. But I'm wondering if you can, maybe now is a, a good time to tell us a bit about how this program differs from what I think of as a more a traditional maybe that's not the word, but a uh, um, uh, other kind of diaspora bond targeting, you know, maybe foreign nationals working abroad or something like that. So can you, can you clue us into some of the differences here? Sure. Uh, I'll be happy to do that. I, I've um, given this some thought before, uh, before this podcast. And, and I, I would say there are four key differences, a lot of smaller differences, but four key ones. And the most important and maybe the most um, telling for other countries like, like Ukraine and others, the major difference is the investor base. The Israel bonds program is not directed to Israelis working abroad. They can buy bonds and they do, but it is not Israeli nationals who are working outside of Israel. Um, it's it's the Jewish diaspora, which, um, you know, for reasons of history uh, has been scattered throughout the world uh, over, over, over centuries of time. And the, the marketing, while uh, uh, while certainly not exclusive, and while certainly uh, people who are not Jewish buy Israel bonds and institutions also buy Israel bonds, um, the investor base is is the Jewish diaspora. It's not Israeli nationals, and that is a difference from, I think, any other country that has tried a diaspora bond program. In Ukraine's case, you know that may suggest that these days. Uh, with the worldwide interest in supporting Ukraine uh, at this time, that, you know, it might be different. I think if if there were a a program developed that was aimed at helping Ukraine in its time of need and marketed not just to Ukrainian nationals outside of Ukraine, but to um, uh, but to the broader public who might be interested in supporting Ukraine, uh, maybe a program could be designed. Uh, in in that way, but I think the the key difference uh, between the Israel bonds program and others is that the the market is not just nationals working outside of the home country, uh, but there's a natural population um, of of Jewish people around the world. And in fact, the um, the cover page of the prospectus for the Israel bonds program says uh, in bold type and has always said since 1951, this offering may have a special appeal to persons with an interest in the state of Israel rather than the general public. Wow. That, that, that is a telling disclaimer. It's still on the bonds in the, in the early days. Um, what that meant, and this was before my time, but I'm assuming that uh, you know, arrange, deals were made with the with the SEC that with that legend, uh, with the special appeal legend, there was very very limited disclosure in the early prospectuses about Israel. The normal you know sovereign bond prospectus, as you know, might be you know 100 or 120 pages of statistical and economic and political information. Uh, none of that was in the original. Uh, Israel bonds prospectuses, but the legend was on the cover. 
beginning in uh, 1995, I think we we Israel did its first uh, what I'll call regular sovereign bond offering through the usual sovereign channels, and began filing for the first time. You know its usual annual reports and form 18k and providing the kind of full disclosure that most sovereigns do at that time we decided that there's no excuse for having you know very little disclosure to the israel bonds investor and a great deal of disclosure to other purchases of other israeli securities so we conformed the two and basically the 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 Israel bonds prospectus currently incorporates by reference all of the usual disclosure uh, that others have. But prior to 1995, with that legend on the cover, there was very, very little about the state of Israel in the prospectus. So, Stephen, th this um, this is a question that I, I was going to ask you about whether these bonds are sort of misnamed as diaspora bonds, since they really seemed to more than tapping a diaspora, they seem to tap a, a, a religious community. I, I'm, I'm thinking about you know my Israeli friends who uh, who have close connections to Israel and family in Israel and go back. They don't even most of them who I've asked about Israel bonds don't have any idea about Israel bonds. They've never even heard of them. Whereas many of my American Jewish friends actually own these these bonds, although they haven't paid attention to them since they were children and got them as presents or things right. like that. So when people, when the Ukrainians think about, for example, tapping the diaspora, maybe this is not the right model uh, well, again, I, in in some in some respects it is, in some respects it's not, and I think as we go through the the, the other differences, well, we can we can identify them. But I I I I don't agree with that that the term diaspora is is not appropriate here because we do think of uh, at least in the Jewish community we do think of a Jewish diaspora, and that refers to uh, not. Israeli nationals, and remember there wasn't an Israel before 1948, uh, but it refers to uh, the Jewish people who, uh, again, have been scattered throughout the world, and 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 we view ourselves as living in in diaspora, uh, uh, away from home. So the term, I don't want to get hung up on the term, but it is different from other diasporas because it's not it's it's not nationals of a particular country. It it is a people. And it's not only um, a religious identity; it, it is a it is in a way a, a national uh, identity. It is a cultural identity. It is um, uh, even, in some respects, a racial identity. Or there are some who certainly view it that way. Um, and the affinity that uh, that Jewish people have for Israel, um, I have to say, and and stop me if I'm wrong, but. I, it is it is qualitatively different, and I've talked to friends who are, for example, of of Irish descent and have tremendously strong feelings for Ireland. But it's not the same as the feelings that Jewish people have for Israel. Um, and there are people who are outside of their home countries who actually have very bad feelings about their home countries. That's why they left in the first place. So there are ties, but not the same feeling of. Um, 
of almost obligation to support Israel, even among those who disagree with Israel politically, disagree with policy uh, decisions, the existence of the state of Israel is of is of um, high importance to most Jewish people, and and really that's a defining difference. So you know the, these bonds have historically been targeted to people who have that you know quote special interest or that special affinity uh, in the Israel bonds program. Most of the investors are individuals, but there's a substantial uh, uh, institutional investment as well. That's something that could perhaps be replicated for countries like Ukraine. Uh, for political reasons, there is investment in the Israel bonds. Um, among, for I don't want to say purely for political reasons, for investment reasons as well. Union pension funds, uh, state pension funds uh, are, are often big buyers of state of Israel bonds because it's in their interest to be able to say that they are. Uh, they also offer, you know, decent rates and good security, but um, uh, but there, there there are reasons why some institutions buy the bulk, the great bulk uh, of bonds, as you said, are sold to individuals. Some of whom, you know, receive when the bonds used to be certificated, they're now all book entry. There are lots and lots of one hundred dollar State of Israel bonds framed and hanging on walls in homes around the country never to be redeemed. And frankly, that's an issue uh, for Israel. So Steve, can you tell us a bit about the process of documenting one of these bonds, just in particular ways that it differs from the process of documenting an ordinary sort of euro bond? I'm assuming it must be significantly different. You've mentioned, you know, the absence of underwriters, but when you as a a lawyer are preparing the documents, how is the experience different? Um, it's a, a good question. And, and that, that, that brings us to one of, one of the other four major differences um, between the kind of usual sovereign bonds and the state of Israel bond program. Um, the Israel bond program is uh, handled by a fiscal agent who serves as registrar paying agent, handles sales, interest principal. It's sort of a, a captive uh, book entry system. So bonds are not sold through uh, broker dealers and not sold through underwriters. They're sold basically directly to the public. When you buy a bond, you are uh, sending your check or transferring your funds to the fiscal agent, which is currently a company called Computer Share. Um, they uh, issue your bond, record the investment, maintain a customer account for you. Currently, there are more than a million customer accounts maintained at computer share, but it's sort of all in-house. And and there are a number of advantages to that that we can talk about, a number of disadvantages as well. One of the advantages is that Israel knows who its bondholders are. There is a registrar that it has access to, uh, and there are, as I said, about a million accounts. Um, and, you know, and, and Israel has the names. The usual sovereign bond is held in street name. Uh, I might hold, uh, you know, a Hungarian bond in my Merrill Lynch account. Um, it is Merrill Lynch that is the uh, that is the holder of the bond as it appears on on the DTC books, um, and it's very difficult for Hungary to know exactly who the beneficial owners of its bonds are. 
uh, very hard to see beyond the Merrill Lynch name. Uh, for the state of Israel, we know who they are. So they're issued pursuant to a fiscal agency agreement, which basically defines the terms of the bonds. And beyond that, they're issued um, really in the usual way through a, through a um, uh, an SEC registered prospectus. Um, the offering is uh, on a continuous basis. So it's not a single firm commitment underwriting where you have a uh, a billion dollars of bonds that are sold and all close on one day. Uh, you can buy a state of Israel bond on any day. Uh, it's issued in two week sales periods. So the interest rate will be fixed for the sales period and you'll be issued your actual bond at the end of the sales period in which you buy. But the terms of the bond are set forth in a fiscal agency agreement and reflected in uh, a base prospectus because we do a shelf registration and a prospectus supplement, uh, the same as it would be for any sovereign issuer. Uh, and those prospectuses incorporate by reference an annual report uh, on 18K, like other sovereigns that provides all of the, uh, all of the country information uh, that's required. Uh, by Stephen, the if, if I may, before we turn to um, the contract terms that have intrigued mm -hmm. us, I want to tap into your securities expertise uh, a little bit. I have always been puzzled by uh, sovereign registrations after Rule 144A and Reg S, because my understanding has been, and please correct me, that most sovereign bond purchasers are institutions. All sovereign bond purchasers for uh, that I know of are institutions. Mark and I find it very difficult to buy sovereign bonds on our own. But Israel seems to be the one exception where uh, registration actually makes sense. Is that a gross oversimplification that for most sovereigns these days who can't, who are not tapping uh, sort of small investors, what difference does it make? But uh, if you if you can set up this amazing program to tap small investors, then then the expense makes sense, maybe. Well, I, I think uh, I think Israel, like other like other sovereigns, has issued um, bonds in the kind of normal sovereign investor market in the commercial market under Rule 144A and, and Reg S. Um, that, that's, that's kind of, that, that's to the side. The Israel Bonds program, because it's sold, you know, to retail investors, to members of the public, um, uh, often, you know, to people who would not qualify as institutional investors or accredited investors, um, the registration really is necessary for the Israel bonds program, for the usual sovereign issuances. Uh, certainly, uh, Israel has issued under 144A and Reg S, as have, as have most other sovereigns, uh, although some of, its, uh, some of its regular sovereign bond offerings have been fully registered as well. Um, frankly, these days, there isn't that much of a of a burden to going through registration given the uh given the shelf registration process um most sovereigns will you know register uh, a, a very large amount of securities under under a shelf registration and then can take them down from time to time fairly uh fairly easily 
So the, the, you lose some of the advantage, I think, of, of, of the 144A and Reg S offerings, which could actually take more time to put together uh, than, than a, an offering off the shelf. So um, I think maybe this is a, a, a good time, or at least I, I'm going to do it anyway, to transition to talk a bit about the contract terms, because as Mitu mentioned at the beginning, one of the things that initially attracted our interest is that while in many respects, the contracts here look like fairly standard sovereign debt contracts, there are lots of ways in which they're different. And maybe I'll start with, to me, the most obvious one, which is the really significant restrictions on trading. Right. So um, I wonder if you can just sort of introduce listeners to that, but also explain why the the these sharp restrictions on transferability are there that's a, that's a really good question and in fact that that's that's the third of my four major differences from the israel bonds and, and other sovereign bonds we mentioned the difference in investor base in the use of the fiscal agent instead of the usual um, uh, issuance and trading systems um, and the, th the third is the non-transferability with some very, very limited exceptions. Um, I, I, I find it a, li a little hard to speak to exactly where it all came from, but I think in the early days of the program, uh, there was concern about who might hold uh, Israel's securities and what and what uh, you know what leverage or what damage that might do. Um, so the bonds were made from the beginning in 1951 non-transferable um, because I think Israel did have a, a concern, maybe a, little, a legitimate concern about who who might accumulate holdings of these bonds. But today, the non-transferability is maintained even as Israel issues bonds that are freely tradable in the market. So that, that concern has been overcome. But these bonds remain non-transferable, I think, for that historical reason, but also because uh, it generally means that the bond is going to be held to maturity. There's not going to be you know, trading and early redemption. You know who's going to buy the who who bought the bond, uh, and if it's a ten-year bond, you know they're still going to still going to be holding that bond ten years later, uh, except if it passes by uh, by will or by dissent. You know who your bondholders are going to be, and they're going to be holding until maturity. There won't be any fluctuation in value based on trading levels you'll uh, be able to you know set your set your rates uh, as i mentioned in a two week period each two week period is a sales period in which rates are set uh and uh israel decides what those rates will be one of the disadvantages of the program is that it is offered continuously there's a huge base of investors and you can't turn it on and off um, one of the difficulties is at times when Israel might not need uh, additional U.S. dollar funds, uh, you can't stop selling because you have this huge apparatus in place um, to sell them. So you can't turn them on and off, but you can adjust interest rates, which will uh, increase or decrease demand. Um, so there's control over that. There's no trading, so there's no fluctuation in value. Um, and lastly, maintaining this uh, this class of bonds as non-transferable is a way to distinguish it and keep it separate from kind of the usual sovereign bond market. 
Yes, the usual sovereign bonds are sold to institutions in the usual commercial markets and kind of like to keep that separate from the uh, retail investment. So is there, are, are there other terms in addition to the restriction on tradability that are distinctive that come to mind for you about these bonds? Because you, you've you worked on a lot of sovereign issuances, and I always uh, think about liquidity as being uh, something that one pays a premium for. Uh, right. do, do these investors, uh, I, I guess, I don't want to ask my second question, which is whether they, they get a higher interest rate in exchange for this lack of liquidity, because I, I want to first ask you whether there are other uh, distinctive terms here that uh, stand out when you're doing uh, doing a bond offering. Uh, n- not not many. The, the, um, the bonds are, by their terms, uh, callable by the state of Israel uh, at par without without premium. But in in a in a in a usual sovereign bond offering, the issuer would pay a, a premium in terms of a higher interest rate to make the bond callable. Uh, I don't think there's any impact on on the interest rates here, but um, is in in the history of the Israel bond program again going back to 1951, uh, Israel has never called securities for for early redemption. Um, and I would be extremely surprised if they ever did, uh, because uh, did, that's not uh, something Stephen, you do to this kind of investor base. What about the the restructuring terms, like the collective action clauses, and um, there are other none, sorts of terms? Yeah, that's a very good question. And at least in the time that I was working on the program, we did have some uh, internal discussions about that. Uh, we have uh, there are there are no collective action clauses uh, in these in these state of Israel bonds. There are in Israel's kind of normal sovereign bonds. Um, part of that is a reluctance to you know e- even suggest to this universe of investors, who again are, are are mostly individuals, may not be the most sophisticated investors, um, but to you know even suggest that there's a mechanism for. Um, you know, for for altering the terms of the bonds off after they're issued, um, probably would not go over well. It's the same reason that bonds have never been called. Um, once in my time of working on this, we did do an exchange offer at, at the time when you know interest rates were dropping severely. We did um, ask uh, holders to voluntarily exchange their bonds for others on different terms, and there was a decent response to that. Um, but in in terms of um, taking collective action to to alter the terms of the bonds, calling the bonds, taking action like that, um, it's 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 very unlikely. And I think there was concern that investors might find that confusing or off putting uh, a little bit. There there is um, you know, but these bonds are are in part bought out of loyalty, and I think there's a sense of loyalty in the other direction as well. Similarly, and, and you're asking about you know unusual terms. There is no prescription period. There's no there's no period, uh, you know, after which you cannot cash in a matured bond. And in fact, uh, Israel routinely 
pays uh, bonds that have matured you know, 20 years ago and have been sitting in somebody's drawer or uh, were passed on by will and, and the recipient doesn't even know uh, that he or she is holding a bond. Um, at one point, um, we realized that there was, I don't want to give you a number, but there was a huge uh, amount of unclaimed but matured bonds out there in the world. Uh, and while Israel and its fiscal agent follow the SEC requirements for trying to find missing bondholders, I think the current requirements just re just require that you send out two letters to the last known address and you try to find the missing bondholders. In Israel's case, it will redeem very, very old matured bonds and has retained a, um, a search firm called Abandoned Property Advisors. If there's anyone out there who finds an old Israel bond in their drawer and wants to cash it in, you can contact um, Abandoned Property Advisors, uh, <laughs> which is handling, uh, which is actually conducting a very, very active search uh, to find missing bondholders and offer, uh, offer um, uh, redemption of their older bonds. Okay, um, this is really trivial, but can these not just, they don't just roll over? This is, I, I'm so embarrassed no, I'm asking this. No, they don't automatically, well, no, it's a very good question. They don't automatically roll over, but the the rate of reinvestment is very, very high. Um, people who hold so, these, so when it comes to maturity, yeah, you get a you get a call from a salesperson who says, "Wouldn't you like to, uh, you know, your bond is about to mature? Wouldn't you like to roll it into a new bond?" And and the percentage of uh, holders who do that is very very high, and that's a strength of the of the program. So, but if but, they're like me and they don't pick up the phone, then the, <laughs> well, it's just going to be sitting in my drawer forever. Well, you know, the, these days, um, these days the bonds are are in book entry form only except for certain institutions that are required to hold paper so a, a physical bond will be issued to them but for most of the investors they're book entry only uh the overwhelming majority of payments are made by direct deposit so when your interest payment is due or or on maturity you're just going to get a deposit in your bank account uh, you know unless your account has been closed and it bounces back you you the problem of missing bondholders has gotten, uh, you know, much, much, much more minor since uh, you've gone to book entry and direct deposit. And I think that's true of, of, of most issuers of securities. Let me mention before we leave it, because it's really critically important, really the fourth difference from the usual sovereign bonds. And that's the way that they are marketed. And, and that's the most interesting part of this program. As I mentioned, they're, they're marketed a continuous offering, uh, which is something that exists in in the SEC rules, but is but is not often taken advantage of, and frankly, sometimes confusing to regulators and particularly state regulators who don't often see continuous offerings. The bonds are offered in a great range of denominations, maturities types of bonds, zero coupon bonds, bullet bonds, um, in, a, in a variety of ways that, that are tailored to different investors' requirements. So you can buy everything from, from a $100 bond that is often used as a, as a bar mitzvah present to $25,000 denomination bonds that are sold more often to wealthy individuals or, um, or institutional investors. 
there is even a type of bond called a financing bond that you can, even though the bonds are non-transferable and non-assignable, there's an exception for financing bonds. So if I want to buy a, a million dollar state of Israel bond, I can go to one of the approved banks um, and borrow the $1 million to buy the bond. The, um, the bank will take that bond in pledge and hold it as security. And I will pay a fee uh, basically, you know, based on two or 3% of the value of the bond. And, um, you know, and, and, and there will be a non-recourse loan to purchase the bond. So basically, for at a cost of a few thousand dollars, I can be a million dollar investor in the bonds by buying it through a bank and pledging it back to the bank and just paying the bank a little spread uh, for the privilege. That's a very creative kind of way of, of, of financing. The bonds are sold in direct marketing uh, through dinners and other events. Um, the dinners, I'll tell you, look more like fundraising dinners, look like charitable dinners where people stand up and pledge that, uh, you know, I'll buy $10,000 of bonds, I'll buy $25,000 of bonds, and everyone applauds, but they're not making a contribution. They're buying a bond and they're going to get paid back at the end. So it's fascinating to watch, but the marketing is almost more in fundraising style. As I mentioned, yeah, there are three brokers around the world. They each have sales forces, they each have local offices, uh, and they are they are selling every day. Wow. I, I have so many questions, but this, who came up with this? Like, this is just, I mean, this is so creative. <laughs> well, it came, you know, it 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 came, uh, I guess, as a brainchild of David Ben-Gurion from the beginning. Uh, it, it is a fascinating program. The way the bonds are sold are interesting, would be very difficult to replicate. But on the other hand, it is a very, very expensive way to issue bonds. Um the co- I, I, I can't give you the exact cost, but if you look at the prospectus, the um, the sales charge, the, the fees that go to the kind of captive broker dealers, I mentioned there are three broker dealers, one for the US, one for Canada, and one for the rest of the world. The US uh, broker called Development Corporation for Israel is an independent uh, separate entity is not owned or controlled by the state. It is registered as a broker dealer with the SEC. It is registered with FINRA. It is regulated as a broker dealer, but it has only one client, and that and that's the state of Israel. So it is, and it has salespeople. It has sales offices, uh, and as I mentioned, there's a fiscal agent who maintains the entire registration and paying agent function uh, in-house. All of that is very, very expensive. The prospectus mentions that the sales charges could be as high as 6% of the value compared with uh, the underwriting fee on Israel's regular sovereign offerings. The underwriters were charged something uh, like 10 basis points. Maybe I've seen as high as 30 basis points. Um, So it's an extremely expensive way to raise money, but from Israel's perspective, and again, I'm speaking, you know, only uh, uh, only uh, as my own opinion. Um, for Israel, it provides a very stable and loyal source of funds. It's a it's a source of funds that's going to be available at times when the usual commercial markets might be closed to Israel. 
even at a time of great stress, and I hesitate to say it, but even at a time of war, this investor base will be more active, uh, even while the usual sovereign markets may be closed uh, to Israel. So, I said, so Stephen, can I, yeah. can I, I, I really want to talk about the, so you've given us these reasons why the the program would be difficult to to replicate and i i really want to talk about that question uh, in the time that we have left a little bit because it seems okay. to me that even granting the sort of uniqueness of the israel bonds program and these difficulties there's such a value in being able to tap that kind of investor base that so many other countries should be interested in doing it, countries with big remittance flows, countries that tap into sort of ideological and values-based investors around the world. So uh, are there aspects of this that that can be readily uh, adapted to for use by Sri Lanka and places like that? I, I, I think so, but um, the problem, and, and I've worked on some, uh, not always, not always successfully. Um, but I would say, you know, based on the experience with the Israel bonds, I think the key is knowing who the investor base is, what they're looking for, not putting a, a, a round peg in a square hole, but figuring out who these who these diaspora investors are, what they might be looking for, tailoring the offering to them and figuring out how to market it, as we found in, in ones that we've worked on, traditional underwriters, the big investment banks who usually handle sovereign debt, may not be that well equipped to, to you know, to, to find retail level um, uh, diaspora investors. You, they may be necessary in order to make the offering happen, but there needs to be something more, maybe other consultants, affinity groups, people who use social media, um, some way to reach the investor base in a way that traditional underwriters may not know how to do. At the same time, as you hire other consultants and other people to be involved in the marketing, you have to pay attention to the securities laws and FINRA and the broker-dealer rules, and that gets very complicated. And again, I've, I've been through that for other countries. Um, but figuring out what the investors may be looking for and how to reach them, how to market to them is really key. I think it can be done, but uh, the the diaspora offering attempts that I've seen really do feel like, uh, you know, a round peg in a square hole, that they're, they're trying to take the normal processes for issuing sovereign bonds uh, and forcing them into a diaspora context, which just doesn't quite work. So, Stephen, we are we have already gone over our time, but I still have questions. Uh, but I, I can't help but uh, tell my little story uh, okay. because I'm sitting here in India and India, and as I read the Indian newspapers, they're talking about how India needs to raise uh, foreign exchange. I think they're uh, running low on foreign exchange reserves right now. And I came across a website talking about Indian diaspora bonds from a long time ago. And one of the techniques, maybe I was misreading it, but I, I don't think so. One of the techniques 
um, was to issue these things called immunity bonds, where uh, they were tapping in people who had sort of um, illegally uh, taken money out of the country and stashed it in Swiss bank accounts. And the way of getting investment in India was to say, we'll give you immunity or we'll help you launder your <laughs> ill-gotten gains if you bring it back. And I'm thinking, okay, um, that's kind of innovative, but not exactly, didn't, didn't feel very patriotic um but well, the question well, one, one, one issue is I, I you know in in my view uh you would not get any uh, any recognized or respectable investment bank or commercial bank to touch that with a 10-foot hole <laughs> because these are laundered funds these are maybe ill-gotten funds that are being hidden, hidden over these so you're not going to get city bank as your underwriter for that one you're, especially when you advertise them as here, here's some money laundering money laundering bonds um but apparently it was very successful um back then but then got a lot of a lot of flack but the question i wanted to to close with unless mark mark has more I, i'm sure mark has more but i i might have taken away all the oxygen is um what what are the what are the rates at which these are issued are these issue are these bonds issued at uh, market rates or do they pay a penalty for the lack of tradability because i mean if i remember back to my finance classes their liquidity is lack of liquidity is generally costly so uh, i would well, think these would these would pay a much higher interest rate um I, I think for the most part and for most sales periods there there is a slight increment above um uh, above treasury rates above uh, comparable rates and it's not so much I, I i don't think this investor base is that concerned uh about transferability I've, I've always been a little surprised at the level of institutional investment in israel bonds because i would have thought that institutions pension funds life insurance companies uh banks uh, need liquidity and 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 ha actually have to book their investments in a different way if they're liquid versus non-liquid. But um, the other factor, obviously, is the risk factor. Um, Israel lives in a in a bad neighborhood and has had a history of of uh, wars with its neighbors. Uh, there is risk to it, but again, this this investor base um is is maybe more motivated than fearful uh about that risk if you go to uh israel bonds as one word.com you'll find the current rates for all of the different uh securities and as i mentioned there are you know more than a dozen i'm looking quickly at it, it might be 20 uh different um types of bonds different maturities that are that are being offered the 10-year jubilee bond for example which is at in $25,000 denominations the 10-year bond is currently at 4.03% at a time when i think the 10-year treasury uh is a bit under is maybe around 3 or 3 plus so yes there's a there's an increment but it may not be as high as as you would expect well stephen thank you so much for for joining us. I there, I still have so many unanswered questions, and uh, am so interested in continuing this discussion about whether 
there's something here that can be replicated by by other countries in other contexts. But that will be for a different podcast, maybe. Um, thank you so much for for coming and giving us uh, giving us your time. Well, again, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, if there are other follow up questions, feel free to give me a call. And um, uh, thank you again.